I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Bob Stutman, one half of the two-person team of Stutman Switoski, on a mission to develop a plan of action to reverse the most devastating drug epidemic in American history, the opioid crisis. Bob was a DEA agent on the front lines in the war on drugs for over 25 years. Now he speaks to thousands of students, parents, and doctors each year to educate them and to understand the real whys and hows of the drug culture, straight from the mouths of the triers, users, and abusers. You can learn more about Bob and his very important work at the StutmanSwatowskiGroup.com. Bob, thank you for being with me. And I can't say I'm thrilled. I'm sad that we have to actually have such a, an intense conversation. Thank you for having me, Sarah. It is a changed world. I, I think it's important that sometime during our conversation, we talk about the fact that we are not only in the middle of the worst drug epidemic America has ever seen by any measure you use. I don't care what measure you use. This is the worst. Uh, and remember, I lived through and worked during the heroin epidemic, the LSD epidemic, the crack epidemic, which people thought was the worst. But all of those are being put to shame by what we have now. But maybe more importantly, Sarah, that a lot of people don't realize is this drug epidemic is changing the American culture. So I like to say it's it's far more than a drug epidemic. It's a culture-changing drug epidemic, which a lot of people don't realize. And that's exactly what I wanted to talk about today, because there's something that has changed culturally in the last 20, 30 years in America that's created an environment that has allowed a different breed of drug users and a different style of drug usage than anything in the past. So what is it that's changed so significantly? Um, let me tell you what I think are the four things that absolutely change American culture. And you're absolutely right. All of your listeners who are, let's say, 40 and over, when they went to high school, and when I say they, I mean they editorially, not them personally. When they went to high school, their friends were smoking grass, doing LSD, maybe PCP, DMT, the street drugs, uh, and maybe even some cocaine. People generally did not die from those drugs. Even cocaine. Even LSD? Pardon? Even LSD? No, they jumped off of buildings, but they didn't die of overdose. That's what I mean by die. Okay. Um, very few deaths. For instance, in 1990, approximately 8,000 Americans died from drugs. Uh, this year, 72,000. And that has gone up by almost 10,000 a year for the past two years. Let me, um, let me give you an example, maybe, Sarah, to, to bring home. We're going to talk about how we got here. But I think it's important we know where here is. Um, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of ads that we all see all the time for breast cancer. I would argue with you that breast cancer 
may be the most feared disease in America by women. It certainly has affected my family. My sister died of breast cancer at age 47. My daughter has had a double mastectomy at age 44. She's going to be fine. It was stage one. But the fact is, it's affected my family. So I'm in no way denigrating this disease. Yes. There are pink ribbon months. I flew on Delta 10 times this month, and they were all wearing pink and taking collections. Great. How many people know that more women died last year from drug overdose than breast cancer? Where are the, uh, the pink ribbons in effect? Right. Well, and I think I, I was in my research, I think there's some crazy stat like drug overdoses is the second leading or was it first leading cause of death for young people? Yeah, uh, the number is I don't have. It is, the, and you're absolutely right when I was getting to, uh, let me tell you the two ways the drugs have changed America. Uh, the life expectancy of white middle-class Americans is lower than their parents or their grandparents. That has not happened since 1968. We've gone up virtually every year in every generation. We live longer than our parents, almost always. But is that because of what I'll call self-induced death because yes, of drugs? primarily drug overdose. Um, the last time it happened, by the way, Sarah, was 1968. What was going on then? The Vietnam War. So it has not happened since 68. But the number you were referring to, which is right on the money, is drug overdose is the leading cause of death of Americans age 50 and below. Now, whenever I use that statistic which a group, with a group of physicians, and as you know, I speak to a lot of physicians. They always say to me, you mean drug death by accident? And I say, no, I mean death. It is the leading cause of death of Americans age 50 and below. I just think that's flat crazy. It's, what happened to it's all tragic. the diseases younger Americans used to die from? They're all secondary or tertiary to drug use. Now, let me go back to the first one I used. Um, the average life expectancy of white middle-class Americans is lower than their parents, grandparents, or great-grandparents. That is not true of African Americans. It is not true of Latin Americans. It is not true of Asian Americans. It is not true of whites in any other country in the world. It is only American white middle class. And I think that says a huge amount. All right, so let's get to what has changed. What is going on in what I'll call the soil of our environment that this crisis is occurring? And I don't, you know, uh, it's, it's, white, it's white middle class. In my opinion, I'm not sure you can, I, as you know, sir, I read virtually every peer-reviewed journal study done on drugs. Uh, as I'm sure you did preparing for this podcast. But I'm not sure there is one on this. This is my opinion, and when I don't have a source for something, I will tell you it's my opinion. I, I think 
first of all, when did it start? I think it started around 95, within a couple of years. And I think there was a perfect storm in the drug world in 95 to cause the change we are seeing now. And what was that? Let me run through the the perfect storm. Uh, These are not in any particular order of causation or time, but let let me run through all four of them. And please understand, they all happened basically within three or four years of each other. And I also want to make one other thing clear, Sarah. Although it may sound at times that I am anti-doctor because of the tremendous amount of opioids they prescribe unnecessarily, I am actually not. My uncle was a neurosurgeon. My granddaughter is in college for biomedical engineering at Northwestern. So we have a family filled with doctors. Although it may sound that I'm anti-doctor, I'm not. They are caught in a terrible position in which these four things push doctors. And I think most doctors will agree with what I'm saying. Um, So what happened in in the 1990s? Number one, Purdue Pharmaceutical started selling a drug called OxyContin to physicians. Why was OxyContin different? It was an extended release opioid. It was really the first of its kind. And they absolutely, unequivocally lied to doctors about the overdose potential of their drug. Now, if I said this on your show and it weren't true, you and I both know they'd be suing me at the end of the show. It is true because they pled guilty in federal court in 2008 to fraud for lying to doctors. They told doctors, and I've got a copy of one of their tapes, that there was a 1% chance of addiction when using OxyContin. Well, we now know it is a hugely addicting drug, and there is evidence that they probably knew what was, how addicting it was, certainly before they stopped saying 1%. And unfortunately, many physicians get very little pharmacology training in med school. Most physicians learn what they learn about drugs from pharmaceutical reps. I tell everybody I know, if you wanna figure out about a drug you may be taking or that the doctor prescribed for you, never ask the doctor, call a pharmacist. Um, they get very little training on pharmacology. They get almost no training. Certainly back in the 90s, they got virtually no training, if any at all, on addiction. So they believe the pharmacological rep. Well, and isn't it crazy also that they don't, the doctors either, they don't have the time or they're so trusting that they don't trust but verify and they don't do any of their own research when the rep comes in and they give the, presumably the chemical makeup, I mean, did, that the doctors had either not the inclination or the, the chemical understanding, the physiological understanding of the body, and that they just nod, nodded bl- blindly that, okay, I believe you. And oh, by the way, these reps are like 
24 years old. I interviewed for that job when I got out of college and thought it was the craziest thing in the world that a 21-year-old who knows nothing was going to go knock on the door and tell a doctor what to do. Uh, you're absolutely right. They do take their word. Uh, most of the time, I, I mean, most doctors I've seen take the word of the pharmacology rep. Um, Has that changed in recent years as the pharmaceutical companies have been found guilty of falsifying research, withholding research studies, et cetera? Has the fact that doctors tr trust them changed? Mm -hmm. It probably has with some doctors. I will tell you, in my opinion, uh, it generally hasn't. Most doctors will tell you they do not have the time to do the research. I had a doctor say to me, uh, not too long ago, something I won't forget. He said, the day I got out of my residency, I was no longer a physician. I was a businessman. It and is I now. I had to make sure my time was used to produce revenue. Now, not every doctor feels that way, obviously. But there are some that do. Well, uh, and they will tell you they just don't have time to do the research. A study done by, I think it was JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, I may be wrong, that said most physicians are five to ten years behind on research. Because, again, they just don't have time. And uh, when I mention that study uh, to groups of physicians I speak to, very few disagree with it. Some do. Now, how about also, and again, I, I'm with you in terms of the my mixed feelings. I have utter respect for doctors. I have utter respect for, for medical practice and medical miracles and, and the life-saving things that it does. I also have great suspect for some of the practices and some of the, um, I'll call it arrogance, of their philosophies. So one of the big things used to be, and I don't know what the state of this is now, is the kickbacks to doctors, that the doctors were in the pockets of the pharmaceutical companies. They were getting paid. They were getting wined and dined. They were getting taken out on all sorts of lovely boondoggles and trips and dinners and all sorts of things. And that also was blinding the doctors to challenging the information they were getting. Still happens, hopefully not as much. I'm going to mention a website now that is very important for two or three reasons. Uh, doctors think what they do is private. It is not private. There is a website that is a great website for a number of reasons for the conversation we're having today. It's called ProPublica.org, P-R-O-P-U-B-L-I-C-A. Org. If you go under prescriber, if you go under prescriber or something, I'll think of the word in a minute, um, it will show your doctor, and it will show two things. Number one, how much he or she took from Big Pharma, those speeches, those trips, etc. how much they got from Big Pharma, and number two, amazingly, it shows how many pills they prescribed by category. So you can see Dr. Stutman, 
You look them up, it'll show he prescribed 50,000 opioids last year when the state average was 10,000. And it will show he got $100 million from Big Pharma when the state average is 5 million. So the website is ProPublica. You would be shocked at how shocked doctors are when I tell them that this is public knowledge. Now, well, so but meanwhile, though, that's like a, a drug addict's supermarket, right? Hey, now I can just go research and find out the doctors that are willing to prescribe for me. Because guess where I learned that website from? Drug addicts. From a drug addict. You're exactly right. I learned that website from a drug addict, and exactly that's exactly what they do. And by the way, if I'm a doctor, you should also know DEA uses that website when they're looking at doctors that should be uh, looked at by DEA because they're prescribing too much. So the bad guys look at it and the good guys look at it. You're absolutely right. If I'm standing in line at the methadone maintenance program, and I say, this ain't going to do it for me today, where am I going to go? To the doctor that prescribes 100000 or the doctor that prescribes 1000 So you're right. It is a supermarket for drug addicts. And I will never forget my partner in my uh, business, Jody Switalski, and I were talking with a physician in, I think, Galveston, Texas, and he was an older gentleman, and he kept saying he doesn't prescribe this stuff. And I'll never forget, Jody went right onto ProPublica, pulled him up, and it said he prescribed almost 50,000 opioids a day. Okay. And she turned around and handed it to the doctor, and he just started getting flustered. And it, it was almost hilarious if it weren't so sad. So ProPublica, and again, I'm going to mention that later because I think it's such an important website. So number one, it was pharmaceutical companies telling doctors it was okay. The worst of them, and this is my opinion, was certainly uh, the company called Purdue based in the same town you guys are based in. Yes. Um, I've met them. I know them. Okay. Um, and they're privately held companies, yes, they are. as you know. Yep, I do. And uh, they're still selling Oxycontin and making billions. Um, Did something else go on at that point in time, too, though, with regard to the advertising? Absolutely. Let me go through those. There were three other things, actually, that, that went on. And again, not in any order, Sarah, but I think all four of them were extraordinarily important. Number two. Medical schools, for the first time, started training a completely alien concept that they had never trained before. And this started somewhere between 95 and 97. And there are disagreements about why they started it, but whatever, they started it. And it is now taught in every medical school in the country. And that is pain is the fifth vital sign. Why is that so important? The other four vital signs, temperature, heartbeat, blood pressure, and I'm not sure what the fourth is, are absolutely objective and measurable. 
a doctor, a nurse, an NP, a PA, can measure all four of those. No doctor can objectively measure pain. Well, and I think there's another aspect to this as well, where it's not just they added that in, but they trained them to have go aim for pain of zero. That's right. right? They so- taught them at the same time to treat to the highest number. So what do I mean by that? How do most doctors now measure pain? They ask you. They say on a scale of no, 1 to 10. They have a happy face chart. Yes, that's right. Yes. They have a happy face chart, which is numbered 0 to 10. What happy face is your pain? Now, as you may know, I think some of your staff knows, I had double back surgery this summer. Uh, one surgery was 10 hours. One surgery was four hours. I was in a great hospital. Uh, the second day when I finally woke up from that stuff, they said to me, is your pain a zero, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten? I learned in about four hours that I, if I said it was a six, I got two Oxycontin. If I said it was a four, I got one Oxycontin. Let me tell you something. I'm not the smartest guy in the neighborhood. If I figured it out in four hours, everybody else probably figures it out in two hours. We ask the patients how much they want, and that is not the way you practice medicine. I always say to when I speak to doctors, I always hold up a happy face chart, and I say to them, you're all surgeons, but you're all scientists, right? They all agree. And then I say to them, since when did this garbage become science? I must have missed that in 10th grade physics because it clearly isn't science. It's asking the patient, what do they want? Well, and also, again, in, this, in our culture, have we, have we come to a place that pain is your body giving you information? Yep. So what signal are we telling people that there's I mean, nobody's ever really at zero. For, for that, there's there's always pain, there's always aches, and yet we're sending the message that that shouldn't exist at all, and that we should have no pain at all, which is unattainable, and we shouldn't tolerate that. If we have any pain, we're broken. Yep, you're absolutely correct. Uh, but that's what we teach new doctors now. Everybody that came out of medical medical school past ninety five learned that there are five vital signs. Well, there aren't. There are four vital signs that are measurable. Uh, And that fifth vital sign is not measurable, and doctors complain about it constantly. Uh, When I say that to doctors, I will get 50% of the group applauding wildly, that they are stuck in a position where they have to make a non-scientific decision about a pill that kills huge numbers of Americans. Um, but just because they're given the happy face chart, that doesn't mean they have to use it. Say that again? Just because they're given the happy face chart, that doesn't mean they have to use it. And they I don't have to blindly that. ask patients to you know, frame it in the way that encourages them to, to ask for more. The majority of doctors do use a happy face chart. The majority of hospitals use it. Interestingly, there is also a happy face chart for marijuana users. How baked are you, man? 
dude. But why, like, if they don't like it, if the doctors realize it's flawed, and I've spoken to anesthesiologists and, and um, ER docs and ER nurses who understand this problem with, with treating to zero, and yet they continue to blindly nod their head, where's their backbone? Uh, I say to doctors all the time, you have to take back your profession. When you took the Hippocratic Oath, you didn't buy into some of this stuff. So as a profession, you have to take it back. And there's more than this where they have to take it back. That's just the second reason. Um, the third and fourth reasons I think are the most important. How many of our listeners today have seen a bunch of pharmaceutical ads on television over the past month? I will guarantee that virtually all your readers and everybody listening to this podcast have seen dozens, if not more, pharmaceutical ads on television. I don't care what the ad is for. The purpose of the ad is to tell the listener one thing. If you've got a problem, take a pill. I've, and if you've got this problem, preferably you'll take my pill. I firmly agree with you. I think that's the most dangerous thing that's going right. on in our culture now. If you have we a problem, now, take a pill. the question. How many of your listeners or readers know that that is absolutely illegal in every other country in the world except New Zealand. There are two countries in the entire world that allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise on television, us and New Zealand. And when I speak to European doctors, they just look at you and say, you're nuts. You guys are nuts. And it's illegal in every other country in the world. And I have doctors who tell me all the time, if I don't give my patient a pill, they think I'm a lousy doctor because they saw on television they're supposed to get a pill. And that, in my opinion, has changed the American culture and may be the most important reason we are where we are today. So how come... The, the doctors, the AMA, doesn't fight to get the advertising back off the air. You tell me, Sarah. I don't know. I'll, I'm, I'm assuming po- deep pockets in the pharmaceutical industry and lobbyists. I'm, I'm assuming. I can't prove it, but I think you're absolutely right. Again, the reason I say to doctors, you guys, and by the way, you guys, is a Northeasterner's way of saying y'all. It doesn't mean just men. Uh, you guys have to take back your profession. Well, and I've, I've interviewed doctors before who do, I, I've challenged them that they feel bullied by their patients who, as you said, they'll get mad at the doctor if the doctor doesn't give them the pill that they want. Yep. And then I think also you had mentioned someplace about doctors being rated not on outcome, patient outcome, but on patient satisfaction. The fourth reason. The fourth reason. It's as though I read your mind. That's exactly correct. When I say this to non-medical friends, I have friends who are not doctors, obviously, 
and I say, would you believe that most physicians, not all, most physicians, and I'm talking about primary care, not specialists, most primary care physicians are not bonused or rated based on how well the patient gets after they see the doctor. It's on whether the patient likes them. And that's called a quality survey. The first one was done by Prescani, a company in Baltimore, around 1986. But any of your listeners who have been to a hospital or been to a doctor's practice that is owned by a hospital, which is most of them, they've gotten a quality survey. And the real question in there is, do you like your doctor? And that's how doctors get bonused. And when I talk about the quality survey, Sarah, and I will speak anywhere from 10, 20 doctors to 1,000 doctors, I get a standing ovation. They hate it, but they are stuck in that grind. Oh, I feel for doctors as humans, they are so trapped. They hate the insurance. They hate their, the fact that they have to be business people. Yeah. I agree with you. They are really frustrated because they can't practice the art of medicine. That's they correct. are forced. I, um, I'm very, I, have a, I, t- I think I told you. My granddaughter is at Northwestern, a great school, and she's majoring in biomedical engineering. You know why? Most doctors I know, and she's wanted to be a doctor her whole life, have said do not go to medical school if you're going to be a doctor. Become a biomedical engineer. You will be much better off in the medical profession because being a doctor is no longer fun. No. And this is what most doctors said to my granddaughter. And i, I got to tell you, that made an impression on me. So you take those four things together, and they all happened roughly 95 to 97, and we end up with a culture today where the primary use of drugs is not street drugs. It may go to street drugs, but it starts with pharmaceutical drugs. Well, and the interesting thing to me, or incredibly sad thing, because it's not just pharmaceutical drugs, because most of the drugs that are advertised are targeting older people, their older ailments, heart disease, whatever. But that trickles down into the mindset at home. So it starts with the toddler who is having teething problems or they fall and get a boo-boo and what's the first thing that mom does? Do you want Tylenol? Yep. Right, that we have this push for intolerance of anything that's not perfect. That's correct and that's America. And again, we've got to realize this is uniquely an American problem. Uh, Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. According to, I think, the Journal of Addiction Medicine, I may be wrong on the journal, but it is a peer-reviewed journal, 40% of Americans have used uh, opioids for long-term pain. Now, why is that? Oh, the number in Europe? 7%. Now, why is that so important? A number of reasons. Number one, you can become physically dependent to opioids 
This doesn't mean you're addicted, because addiction requires mental dependence. You can become physically dependent to opioids after four days of use. Very short period of time. And it happened to me when I had my back surgery. But I, I will tell you that later on, that story. The, the bottom line is we prescribe huge amounts of opioids, and Europeans prescribe almost none. In 1995, the best number we have is about 10 million doses of opioids were prescribed. In 2015, the number was 250 million. That's just crazy. Now we're talking. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. We're talking um, about opioids, but what about the the ADHD, the Adderall and Ritalin? Does that play into this as well with the amount of deaths over uh, you know deaths due to drugs and no, the increased uh, use? Generally, generally, Adderall and Ritalin, or stimulants in general, do not cause death. They do not cause overdose. They will cause a very strong addiction. Uh, Adderall and Ritalin are extremely addicting, but they rarely cause death. To die from a stimulant, you uh, and that includes cocaine, you almost have to have an underlying cardiovascular problem. How about uh, behavioral issues? Will it, will it, is it creating erratic behavior, suicidal behavior, manic behavior? That it is causing, yes. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm concerned about the opioid epidemic and death. I'm concerned about the societal risk of all of these drugs yep. and what, what we are doing and the risk we're putting our young people at. So what can people do about this? I mean, so, so now we've got, we've painted a very sad, tragic environment of helpless doctors, powerful pharmaceutical companies, and parents and families and individuals who have We'll call it been been victim or gotten on on the train of this and drank the Kool-Aid. Now what? Well, first of all, parents have to learn this issue before they talk to their kids. Do not talk to your kids if you're going to shoot from the hip and say things. Let me let me give you an example. Uh, I think the strongest thing that parents have to do is learn what they're talking about before they talk. Many, I would like to say most, I can't back that up, but many parents basically say to their kids about drugs, if you do drugs, you're going to die. Now, they may make it more fancy, but that's the basic message. Let me share with you uh, something that happened to me. I, I talked to about 10 to 12 high schools a year. Of all the speeches I give, and we give about, between Jody and I, we give close to 200 speeches a year. Of all the speeches I give, I like talking to high school students the most. Because if you're honest with them and they know you know more than they do, they listen to you. So we talk to high school kids, part of the day is, in a room without any other teachers, administrators, and we're very honest with each other. So I did that, that presentation one day at a great, great high school. It's called Marquette University High School in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 
happened to be a Jesuit school, great school. We've got about 1,400 parents in the audience, and if we have time, I hope you will ask me how we got 1,400 parents in the audience when most high school speeches, we got 200 parents in the audience. Anyway, there's about 1,400 people in the audience. A young man is there who spent the day with us in the high school, and his parents are with him, and he raises his hand to say something. And he turns to the president of the school, I remember him well, Father John Belmonte, and he said, Father Belmonte, thank you for having Bob Stuffin here. He was great. He never talked down to us. And that was very different. And then he turned to his parents in front of 1,400 people. How would you like to be mom and dad, Sarah? Sitting there in front of 1,400 people. He said, Mom and Dad, I know you love me. I know you care for me. I know you want the best for me. But the only thing you ever told me about drugs was if I do drugs, I'm going to die. And he looked at him and he said, I did and I didn't. So I never believed a single word you said after that. Boom. How would you like to be mom and dad in that situation? It's so true, though. tend to talk to their kids, and they have no clue what they're talking about. So learn the facts, number one. And then number two, start talking to your kids at a very early age about this subject. Um, The average age, the most important thing, I think, every drug treatment specialist, that is listening to this podcast, I think they all agree. My mentor in the treatment world is a gentleman named Dr. Mitchell Rosenthal, who's a child psychiatrist. He founded the Phoenix House. Yes, um, I know it well. Okay. He's in, in fact, New York. I'm going yeah. to, I talked to him two days ago. I'm going to see him shortly. I have the highest respect for Mitch Rosenthal. He used to say to parents 30 years ago, before anybody else said this. He said, your job as a mom and dad is to make sure your child never uses drugs or alcohol. But if you cannot achieve that drug, your secondary job is to put off every single day you can the first time they try. Because every day you put off is on your side. So the age of first use is incredibly important. Now, let's go back to the average age of your listeners. Let's assume it's about 40, okay? When most of your listeners were in, or readers, were in high school, average age of first use of drugs was about 16. It is now around 12 and a half. Average age of First, alcohol tasting. That doesn't mean they're getting drunk. It's first time they're tasting it. The average, gra- uh, the grade that has the highest risk fast factor of kids first tasting alcohol is fourth grade. That's crazy. But again, I want to bring it back to the the root root problem, and then we're going to wrap up. That 
isn't it though? Like it's the it's the drug use of the high school kids. But I would bring it back. Let me challenge you to bring it back again into the childhood, into the home, into the culture, and in terms of what can people do that any time that they should stop going to the doctor, insisting on getting drugs, and looking for drugs is the solution to everything. And if a doctor is prescribing a drug, ask them why. Ask them their their experience with that drug. Ask them the risk factors of it. And is there a safer alternative? I think those are great ideas. I don't think they solve the drug problem, by the way. So let me challenge you. Okay. I think they're great ideas for piece of the drug problem. And I would ask you a second question. Why don't doctors do that automatically? Well, now we go back. 23% of doctors tell their patients the risk factor of the drugs they are taking. That means 78%, 77% don't. Shame on them. But as you said earlier, they don't know it. They're taking the information from the pharmaceutical salespeople who are minimizing the risk factors. They're saying it's only in you know a fraction of a fraction of a percentage of people that might possibly have a risk to it. That they're not, I don't think that the doctors are getting the information and then why aren't they challenging it? Because they're pressured. They're pressured for their approvals. They're pressured from their patients. They want to be nice guys. They only have seven minutes per patient. So they're not even able to get the full history of the patient. Yeah, and you're absolutely right about all of them. I guess the only thing I would challenge you is most doctors do now know what opioids do. Well, they do, but let me ask you this. What's the prescribing habit? So last uh, I checked, the prescriptions... You're right. correct. So, you know, it's like everybody said, if you ask anybody, are you a good driver, they'll all say yes. If yeah. you ask them if they like, you know, some other doctor is over-prescribing, but not theirs. Some yeah. other person is over-prescribing, but not me. That it's... Uh, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, and I know you want to cut back, cut this a little... But now, but I hope we will get a chance to talk about uh, those numbers and why doctors do it and what they're doing and why don't they just tell people? Well, we're going to talk in another podcast about what doctors do and don't know about pharmaceuticals. So you and Got I it. could talk about this culture of and this, this fertile environment for drug usage forever. We could go on and on and on. It's a scary thing. It is ruining our country and ruining our children's future. And if we don't nip it in the bud early and realize that the dangers that were created into the environment, but to me, the responsibility is on every single person listening to make that change. It's going to be a grassroots change because it's at the individual choice level. So Bob Stutman, thank you so very much, the Stutman Swatowski Group. Thank you, Sarah. I'm talking to Robert Stutman a 25-year veteran of the Drug Enforcement Administration, about the serious threat to society that exists as a result of the devastating drug epidemic that's overtaking America. This crisis is affecting people of all ages, genders, and social classes. But unlike drug problems of the past, this one is starting at the doctor's office and hospitals. Bob is on a mission to reverse this horrific killer. He's just one of the thousands of experts featured in our twice-monthly newsletter, Bottom Line Personal who provide their expert advice to guide readers into action in their own lives. In addition to Bob's wisdom regarding the dangers in our medicine cabinets, Bottom Line Personal is filled with actionable advice on all aspects of your life, including living a healthy life, traveling safer and cheaper, 
how to find the best insurance, retirement planning, smart tax strategies, and even travel to little-known destinations. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP.